Hello, and welcome to You Never Walk Alone, Voices from the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. My name is Meredith Wade, and today I'm bringing you a conversation about Lady Mass, Rites of the Emerald Table, an original performance art piece created by members of the chaplaincy community. Lady Mass debuted this May as an open-air performance installation, and will continue to unfold as a short film in late summer 2021. You can encounter parts of the piece, including original music by Boston-based composer Adam Jacob Simon, online at harvardepiscopalians.org slash ladymass. In this episode, Chaplain Rita Powell and I are joined by two special guests who helped bring Lady Mass into being. Professor Charles Stang, the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School, and Kirsten Z. Cairns, artistic director and founder of Enigma Chamber Opera in Boston. Let's dive in. Lady Mass is a production that is that is spans the length of our time together, Meredith. Um, and that kind of right out of the gate, we had an idea that we wanted to do something with the arts, something with theater, but we didn't exactly know what. Um, and we didn't exactly know how or when, but we had the idea that we did want to play somehow um, as a way of simultaneously creating something that had some ability to be critical of the church, but also something that could be festive and kind of zany and appeal to people who were not at all connected with the church. And that we thought the arts would probably be the kind of thing that could allow us to cross that bridge. But we had a lot of different ideas about how and what and so forth. Um, and then in the context, I guess it must have been of early Christian thought, your early Christian thought class, the Greek tradition. Yep came across this essay of Charlie's um, about, uh, about Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite. Mm -hmm. and, Household name. <laughs> and this idea of, I'm going to say my version of it, and then we're going to have you, you know, okay. set the record straight. Is that Fantastic. Work? Okay. So an idea that, that there's one way of understanding God is understanding a kind of, that there's a stable, almost molecular structure to how God and people are constellated or interact. And that that structure itself um, is not something that you need to spend time uh, problematizing or destroying, but rather is a structure that allows for the sort of circuitry of divine light energy to function. So, and this is the origin of the word hierarchy. It's like, I feel like I'm taking a, a test right now. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and but it's a mistake that's both true and always a mistake to ever think that any framework or way of talking about god is going to actually get you to god that god has to be something beyond behind past beneath can't talk about it can't have words about it etc so you have to have both some way of keeping the structure intact so the light energy can actually move but you also have to have some way of destabilizing the authority of that structure so that you don't think that the structure is the actual some content of God. And so the way to destabilize said structure without destroying it is the absurd. And so in, <laughs> this is my read, right? And so that the, and this is in Pseudo-Dionysius, it's about the names of God that this comes into play, that names of God which are closer to the actual attributes of God are more likely to mislead you. So you need ridiculous names for God because those are easy to reject. So if you say God is a, a drunken bunny rabbit, it's easy to say like, no, that's clearly not God. And thus you don't make the mistake of identifying God with a name. So in this essay that Charlie wrote, he says, oh, interestingly, pseudo Dionysius uh, has a hierarchy, a structural account of the church, but unlike with the divine names, he has no, he has no corresponding absurd for the structure of the church. And so there's this line in this essay that's like, I wonder what rituals or rites <laughs> of the absurd might fill this role. And for me, that was like a giant beam of divine commission. <laughs> so that's- I wrote that line for you. I felt that way. <laughs> um, Charlie oh. wrote that. Rita said, challenge accepted. And later that was born, <laughs> basically. Right. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Right. So I was writing on this this figure uh, who is a sixth century author and is remembered 
principally for two things, being a fountainhead for mystical theology in the Eastern Christian tradition, and also for being the first real theorist of hierarchy in Christianity, and he coins the term hierarchy. And hierarchy for him names the order of the angels and the order of the church. And it also, well, I should say that hierarchy is organized according to a principle of things being more or less like God. Now, there's a fundamental kind of paradox in his system because as he's structured all of hierarchy according to this logic of what's more or less like God, in his mystical theology, he's saying God is unknown and unknowable and beyond any possible simile or similitude to creation. So there is nothing that can be more or less like God because God is completely other. Now, he also organizes a whole contemplative program around the divine names, as Rita said. And those divine names are also organized according to what is like or unlike God. The divine names that are more like God are names like good, light, beauty, love. And the names that are unlike God are these absurd scriptural names like God is a drunk or God is a worm. And so he says, actually, contrary to what you might think, contemplating the names most like God, are you're in, a, you're in an acute position of danger when you contemplate the names that are allegedly most like God, because you might think that these names are actually adequate. They might, that you might actually think they're like God, and God is beyond any of these names. So what you should do is contemplate, I mean, you should contemplate the name, all names, but you should be particularly attentive to the, what he calls, dissimilar similarities, sort of paradoxical names, what we are calling kind of absurd names. So that's like a check on the possible idolatry of the names that are allegedly most like God. But he doesn't carry that same insight through into the ecclesiology. And that's what I was inviting someone to do, uh, to say certainly any church hierarchy would seem to suffer from a similar temptation to idolize the higher ranks as more like the divine, whether those are human ranks or angelic ranks. And so I was inviting a reader to think what might be the ecclesiology of the absurd. What's the church equivalent of the absurd names of God? And lo and behold, someone came along and read that essay, which was in an obscure little edited volume about Anglican ecclesiology. No one would have read it were it not for the fact that I assigned it in my class <laughs> because I'm a deep narcissist. Um, no, I, 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 that, that may be true, but that's not why I signed it. Uh, in any case, uh, Rito came along and read it, and I was gratified because, to be perfectly honest, I'm not exaggerating, when I wrote that piece and I wrote that paragraph, I thought, is anybody ever going to take this invitation up? I really did think that. I had no idea. I, was, I wrote it while I was teaching a bunch of priests down in Swanee, so I, had, I was surrounded by priests. Um, and I thought, I wonder if any priest will ever take this up. And lo and behold, Rita Powell comes along and does. Over to you. It's so interesting. As you're, you're narrating it, I'm thinking immediately, Kirsten, um, I'm immediately thinking of some of the work that you did with the Drama Club, um, which is jumping ahead in the sort of narrative, but just so I don't forget it. When you had us do the, uh, the exercise where we told three things about ourselves and contrary to the usual two truths and a lie and you try to guess which is the lie it was still that but you specifically said it had to be a lie that we wished was true <laughs> and then that thing was 
quite revealing. So there's something, there's some of the same grammar there in which a thing which is not true can, has the ability to potentially show something which is true. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's that idea that you get more into the core truth of something when you look at it in a different way or turn it on its head or um, turn it inside out, you know, an abstract painting of a scene may tell you more about what it was like to be there at the scene than a photograph of the scene because of the feeling and the truth behind it that it reveals. And so, yeah, I, I was interested to see what people said as their untruths that they wished were true because it actually tells you a lot more about a person when they tell you something they wish was true about them than if they just tell you a fact about themselves. So we have this, this like, Meredith and I have this idea, we know we want to do something. Then we get this hot idea from Charlie, oh, we should do something absurd. And very quickly, we, uh, very quickly after that is when Kirsten came in and met with us. Just to say, as someone who is, um, and we have many different ways of introducing Kirsten, but you are both a, you know, professional theater director, but I know you from uh, a particular strain of that work from your work at Trinity Church, uh, putting on two Benjamin Britten operas uh, that made use of the full range of people's abilities. So you worked with, you had a series of professional singers and actors all the way down to um, people who were, you know, just, just volunteer and amateur and kind of were able to make space for that whole spectrum of participation. And um, in order to do those two opera productions, you I saw you have to use in a huge amount of ingenuity with regards to set and costume and character and all this kind of thing. Um, and so I knew that you would be, you'd be an important consultant for us to take anything from a kind of idea phase into something actual. But I'm just mentioning that in part because I'm thinking of Meredith, one of Meredith's big contributions as an artist, I think over the past few years is a strong assertion that while professional the professional uh, component of the arts is essential for the sort of life and vitality of people being able to really create things and actually make a living that way. Equally important is that art not be only the domain of the sort of vetted professional, but be available for a variety of people to enter into. And that is a particular gift of yours, Kirsten. So um, do you remember anything about that, uh, that initial meeting, Kirsten? I'm curious, and Meredith too, if you, uh, yeah, I, I do. I do. Um, of course, we had we had already sort of been plotting ideas for things that we might like to do together, even when you were still at Trinity, having done Noah's Flood and Company of Heaven. And, and I did the Mark's Gospel Project with Patrick and we had our Good Friday project. So we'd already done all kinds of kind of weird and wonderful ways of exploring the space. And, and as you say, that um, the treasure that it is to be able to say anyone can participate in this. We can make it work even if you think you're, you don't have the skills. Yes, you do come and take part and that, that's a really fun thing to do. So we already had those further ideas that we had been fermenting. Um, and then when you said, hey, come and have a meeting with us at the um, chaplaincy, I, I remember it very clearly. I remember you had chocolates that were stuck in my head. <laughs> <laughs> this little bag of candy, hurrah! Um, but also, it was the the what struck me immediately was the idea of being able to revel. Um, mm. It was that you know this idea of the absurd. Just first of all, I love that turning things on their head, looking at them from a different angle. Um, that sort of we talked about then the Twelfth Night Revels and the Lord of Misrule and those ancient traditions. I mean, used to be boy bishops in the church at Twelfth Night. So these are old traditions of people dressing up as other than what they are and um, changing the hierarchy of who's in charge for a Twelfth Night dinner or whatever it might be. Um, I love harking back to those traditions because they were traditions for a reason. I think they speak to people on a fundamental level. That's why they have happened through the centuries. 
Um, and the wonderful thing also when you're being absurd or when you're reveling is that it gives you a lot of leeway and it makes it much easier to say, yeah, we can make this happen. There's that space to let a project kind of unfold. If you're trying to do something very specific, mount a very specific work of art, then you have stipulations that you have to meet and a certain standard and a certain preconceived notion but when you're saying hey let's throw it all up in the air and see where it lands that's really exciting and it gives the project room to be really organic so that those were the things that struck me in that first meeting of like wow there's so much we could do and and so many ways this could grow and that's really exciting i think organic is exactly the right word for it because this project has had this quality of sort of not fully being within our control and of course like we are doing a lot of the like thinking behind it and imagining and it's you know we're pulling off of ideas that Rita has come up with and developed um but also I I remember coming out of that meeting and like feeling a little bit overwhelmed <laughs> just with like the sense of like oh there's like there's something like sort of like moving and like growing and like that's that's kind of like how it has felt to me recently sort of watching it come to fruition um it just feels like this thing that has sort of been unfurling and there are parts of it that we could not have predicted or you know tried to design or make happen on our own um i think like for example like the book of insight has been like a really really amazing part of that where people go through the experience and they come out into this you know reflection meditation area and write have the ability to write comments um if they want to and like some of the things that people have written after experiencing Lady Mass have just been kind of mind blowing. And just like that experience of creating and putting together this thing and not having full control over how people receive it. And that being like part of the process is sort of what they do with the experience um, and what they like give back to us um, through that medium. I, I feel like I've really, um, I've just been appreciating like that sort of arc of this project's growth. That's an interesting point in view of, and this may be out of sequence with what we're thinking about in the podcast, but in view of the ideas of Eucharist particularly that we were, have been exploring as one of the aspects, um, that really mirrors the idea of when you receive communion, do you bring more than you take away to that offering? And we are making this offering, if you like, we are offering the bread and wine or the champagne and chocolate or the dirty water and trash or whatever it may be. But in a way, the, the pilgrims, the audience members who are coming to receive are actually giving us more through their insight, through their participation, through the way that they shed light on what we believe we're offering up but only through their experience of it do we get a sense of what we're actually offering so again it's that wonderful sort of dichotomy of in any kind of ritual giving what you bring is perhaps more important than what you take away um i want to go back to i want to go back to dionysius for one second because i want to say you know i'm listening to to what you're saying which both of you which thoroughly describes the experience of this and i'm realizing you know i'm like i'm giggling to myself because i'm like man although this you know this this essay may have launched something i can't but feel currently like how pretty far away i'm sure pseudo would not recognize a kind of like free form organic art project as anything credible in terms of even as like a location performing a function in the location of a hierarchy um, and so I want to ask Charlie two things, like one, but I am thinking about the way in which um, when you talk about people coming out of the experience and, and people writing great things, I'm also aware of a number of people who have not been able to write anything when they've come out because precisely they're having, um, they're having an experience that does not lend itself to, uh, to easy articulation at all. And so there I'm suddenly wondering, while, again, I think this is very divergent from Pseudo-Dionysius, but I'm interested because there is a, there's surely some relationship between a highly articulated set of things and a sense of a God who is utterly inaccessible 
through those things in any kind of linear and direct way. Um, and yet there is some relationship between the two. Like you don't just get to even the most, you know, as right, Pseudodionysius is one of these champions of the God who is, can't be known and yet is also one of the mystics who has written a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think, my question to you is like, to what extent do you think the relationship of a highly cataphatic, symbolic, visual, performed set of rituals, does that correspond, like how does that relate to a kind of wordless experience? And do you think that that sort of pairing is in any way authentic or faithful? Absolutely. Okay. That's absolutely authentic. I mean, for Dionysius, the wordless union with the unknown God, which he calls unknowing, depends on our being immersed in word and and symbol. Uh, which, but but his but his contention is that scripture and liturgy, which are the the two domains of word and symbol that he thinks we're we're as as Christians we're most immersed in exist uh, precisely as the scaffolding to make possible that kind of wordless uh, encounter. And that, that wordless encounter is not just a, I mean, that, that, that framework is not a scaffolding you kind of climb once and then discard. Uh, it, it's, you're, you're constantly in this kind of loop of um, needing to be immersed in word and symbol and, and setting word and symbol against themselves, right? And that's where the absurd comes in to kind of crack open or find the cracks where that wordless, um, that wordless encounter with the divine light can be made possible. That's absolutely authentic to the, to the inspiration. I mean, to, to, to the, to his thinking. I think you're right. You know, he's also a deeply conservative thinker, right? right? This whole, he, he theorizes hierarchy. We, one hypothesis is that he's a theorist of hierarchy because he wants monks who are out there doing crazy things, spurning the sacraments, thinking they don't need to listen to bishops or priests. He wants to bring them back in and say, nope, the only access to the light is by occupying your place in the hierarchy. So there's something deeply, deeply conservative about him. But I don't think you should feel beholden to, to him in this regard, because I think one of the things that's so amazing about this corpus is that it contains, it contains potential that I don't think he mm. is aware of or is actualizing. Mm. And I'm not the first to have noticed that. I mean, mm. the history of Christian mysticism is in some sense an attempt to actualize things in this corpus mm. um, that he may want to contain mm -hmm. in the, the, the neat structure of hierarchy, but can't. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'd say brava. <laughs> well, thank you. I got one more question because, you know, I feel that the, um, two things and part of the reason I'm, it's important to flag that is because yeah, like we are particularly theorizing a possible sense of church and the divine that is largely written, owned, performed by women and at least not too many explicit men, <laughs> something in between, something that's a little defiant of those categories, which I know Pseudo-Venesius would be like, what the hell? No, hard no out, you know? So that's just, we gotta, we gotta celebrate where we're actively diverging and intentionally diverging. Um, but I also just want you to say a little bit about hierarchy because right, that's like the dirty word of, yeah. and while on the one hand, like, yeah, I'm certainly, happy to be like an armchair critic of people in power. That's fun. Um, but I'm not actually, in my critique of the church, I don't think I'm actually fundamentally advocating for a church that has no structure. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm curious to hear you say a little bit, because again, you know that hierarchy is like utter dirty word. Yeah. Um, and yet, I and this guy is the origin of the word, yeah. but he doesn't, doesn't quite mean it the way he both does mean it the way that we want to critique and doesn't. I don't know if you yeah. want to, what is it? What is the word in Greek? Order? It just means order? What is it? It means sort of holy order. Holy order. Yeah. Yeah. I am here. 
holy order. Um, so, right, it's a dirty word. That's basically how I start the essay, saying, <laughs> really, you know, this is the word everybody is critiquing. Uh, and, and, they're, and as you say, he means it in the way that people are critiquing, right? He does think, for instance, you should not break rank. You should not seek a position higher than what has been allotted to you. And we balk at that understandably, especially because we know all too well the ways in which the earthly instantiations of hierarchies just perpetuate systems of exclusion and, and uh, perpetuation of power. He also means something else by hierarchy, which I think is what you're after, which is a structure of differentiation and space that allows for the divine to move through all members of the hierarchy. So another way of putting that is something can't move through anything unless there's an arrangement for it to move through, right? A circuit is organized in a certain way so that the energy can flow through it. And that is in some sense, his fundamental definition of hierarchy. And that's the, that's the part of his definition of hierarchy that I want to highlight. Because it goes down and up. Right. So the, the, in this hierarchy, in this sort of providential arrangement where everyone who has agreed to be part of the hierarchy is situated, the source flows through it. The source is, is God, and the energy that flows through it, it the divine energy, is Jesus for for. Jesus, and, and he says that that's the divine energy and the divine light. And it flows, it sort of radiates out from the divine source, down through the angelic ranks, down through the ecclesiastical ranks. But because the light doesn't just, the energy doesn't go just down, it also has to cycle back up. It's going both ways simultaneously. So you have to receive the energy from your hierarchical neighbor above you and pass it to your hierarchical neighbor, so to speak, below you. And you have to then in turn receive it from your, the, the, the hierarchical neighbor below you and pass it to your neighbor above you. Uh, so, and, and, and what that means is that um, this deification, this hierarchy is, He's explicit, the aim of hierarchy is to deify all the members of the hierarchy, mm. all the members of the hierarchy. And the energy that passes through the hierarchy is not different because you get it at a different point in the hierarchy. It's still the divine energy. Um, so anyone, well, two things result. You can, you can fail to receive and you can fail to pass on. And so one of the implications of that is that deification is a, a corporate affair. It's a collective endeavor. You can mess it up <laughs> for your neighbors. And you can mess it up for your neighbors who are uh, above you and below you. And so you depend on your hierarchical proximates, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Whether they're angels or humans, or on some interpretations, even demons. So interesting. Um, thank you for that. I wanted to go back for a moment, if I can, to the, the sort of wordless encounter idea, mm -hmm. just because I think that's so relevant to artists that in many ways, depending on our particular art form, what we're always striving for is an artistic experience that is a wordless encounter that doesn't have to be explained in some other way and as human beings we're all slightly trapped in the need for language to express what we're experiencing you know we, we can't ever know what another person is feeling or thinking unless they communicate it to us and most of the time they communicate it through language of some kind even body language is a language of some kind so words and symbols we can't just kind of by a process of osmosis, know what someone else is going through. And so 
we have a need, you know, when we put a painting on the wall in an art gallery to stick an essay on the wall next to it to explain it, instead of just allowing the, the viewer to receive it in whatever way they receive it. And um, one of the things that I found myself saying to students a lot when I've been working with young performers is it's not your call to decide how your audience will receive what you put out there. You have to just put it out there. You, you kind of throw it at them. And I always used to call it throwing the onion because you're layering all these layers and layers of your interpretation and your thoughts and your ideas and you're sort of building up this onion and then you just chuck it at the audience and it's up to them what they do with it. Um, and although we are, because we're humans, doing a lot of thinking and talking around this project and giving people opportunities to try and express in words in our book of insight what they think or to ask us questions to find out what we were thinking, because that's, that's our human nature that we want to do that. But I really love the idea of achieving some kind of artistic experience which cannot be defined in traditional language of any kind, whether that be a, a language of words or a language of symbols, and that people have to just experience. And it's one of the things that I've been trying to encourage friends who've been saying, well, I'm gonna come and see your thing. And I, I'm saying, just allow yourself to be still and be present and experience, and don't feel the need to then interpret and put into other words, oh, this is what I meant, you know? So um, it's exactly that idea of how can we free ourselves from this perpetual, and I'm the worst at it, I'm a terrible overthinker, and oh, let me verbalize for you how I experienced that. But I, as an artist, I love the idea of, of trying to throw off the chains of having to interpret and just experience. And perhaps even permitting, I mean, I think when, I think people, I'm thinking again of a number of people, Charlie included, you know, but people who've gone through the Lady Mass circuit <laughs> and had an experience and not entire, like not, not had recourse to, to, to being able to verbalize after the fact. And the suspicion um, that I think that is out there is the suspicion if you can't, it's not as valid if you can't translate it back out into words. Mm. Um, and so I first what you're saying, which is like, can we actually hold space for people to have significant and substantial encounters of a sort which will not do that, which will not come back out to the surface? I was just going to say, the minute you put anything into words, you restrict it. The, you, you bring it down to a human level, an, an, an experience or a, a deity, whatever it is. The minute you say it was this, You've, you've shut it down in a way, you've enslaved it to be that in that language. Whereas when you don't do that, it can be so much more. It can have endless possibilities. You know, it, it's a little bit sort of the um, cat that either is or isn't in the box, <laughs> you know, that you don't have to say, you don't have to answer the question of what it is. And then it can be all things. But as soon as you say, oh, I experienced it in this way, you've shut it down. This is, I think, one of the worries I have about the Book of Insight, mm -hmm. which is you ask people to move through this and immediately there's a book and you invite people to put something in words. Uh, and although I, I don't know that I think that words are always a trap or enslavement, I, I do think even the invitation to write in the book, um, if you're asking people to suspend interpretation, that's somewhat at odds with presenting the book in a pen. Well, this is very interesting because I think I, I wanna, it's almost like you've got a, there's some kind of line there too, because I think the ability to hold, to hold a non-articulated experience, I think is fairly sophisticated. Um, and there is, you could easily say that if you, so in other words, an invitation to reflect 
I think is essential. I think we may have a few extremely hardcore practice mystics going through this thing. Mm. And we may have people who are not at, you know, who are on various kind of places on that register. And so I think it actually is back to Dionysus and this like back and forth. It takes the people who cultivate kind of truly apathetic experiences, which can even be really called experiences, rightly so, do so from with an intense framework in which reflection and reading of one's experience as well as texts of all sorts is a huge part of the practice. So in other words, like a simple, this, it's not, I don't think it's enough to simply valorize totally inarticulate experience. No. Um, neither is it, you know, and, and so there's some kind of, nor do I also, I also don't want to invalidate people's ability to, to put something to words. I'm thinking of, um, now I'm thinking about my, you know, my, my psychedelic trip at NYU. And when you, you know, you came right out of this kind of encounter with the abyss and you had to write something down right away. And it was like, oh my God, what, this is a violence for me to, but I wrote down three things, no ability to think actually, or process or try to land the experience. Simply, in fact, a kind of, even the words in that exact moment that was still held inside the experience did actually capture something of the experience that subsequent attempts to reflect on it failed to do. So in other words, I want to make space for the, for the real possibility of being able to say something that is still somehow inside the experience, um, despite also acknowledging the, the danger of, and, and to also say that inviting people, pointing out that even a wordless experience requires some I do think it requires some work with for it to not just be a kind of completely inaccessible layer that maybe does something, yeah. but or dissipates um, or dissipates. Yeah. And I think also, again, what's interesting to me is actually relative to the number of people who've gone through, very few people have written in the book of insight. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that right? So, yeah. yeah. And so I think we have, I hope, I'd like to think we have succeeded in letting people know that they don't have to. It's a kind of, if you want to, and, and again, as an artist, um, you're trying to give your audience permission to experience the art in whatever way is best for them. And I do think it's important that we recognize that some people will feel a need to articulate because that's part of our human nature. So it's almost like, a, a safety valve right if you walk through this and you're like oh my god i have to express it in some way here's a vent where you can let off some steam and it's there for you and we um sort of validate your experience in in wanting to hear from you but you also can just hold it and walk away and and i would say the vast majority of people like maybe 75 percent of people have just walked away that it's only a handful who leave messages each time. I also want to say something about the language question throughout the experience and um, Charlie as our the only person here in this foursome who's been a real live <laughs> traveler through this lady mass right because we've all been inside of it right you, you may have a particular way of commenting on this but um, we've been using the word wordless or that we've got some encounter cooking here that may permit access to something uh, other than kind of linear words and yet it is saturated with language. It's saturated with visual language and symbol, intelligible symbol. Um, as you were saying, Kirsten, it's also saturated with body language because the way in which each station involves an encounter, which is entirely conditioned by body language. It's not an encounter in which, you know, Charlie stands here and I stand here and nothing, we do nothing. I'm like, every actor is moving and is communicating through their movement and gesture. Um, and people are responding and bringing different things. Um, and then there are, of course, words floating around. There are words being sung. There are words being spoken even utterly unintelligibly by our Desert Father Elmo. And, you know, Kirsten says a word at the beginning. Um, there is whispered words interspersed with the music in the mass. And then Pilgrim is handed a word or a few words mm -hmm. at the end. But the words are perhaps operating in, a, at least we can say they're not operating in an overly linear 
way. But I'd be curious, Charlie, if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> Sorry, it's going to make you process your experience, even though we just tried to give you space. But I'm curious, as someone who is highly attuned to language in particular, if you wanted to say anything about the sort of like the experience of it from the perspective of did you feel it was an experience that was apart from words, but dependent on language? I don't know, just something in that category. You can pass too. You can keep it wordless if you want. Well, uh, you know, you and I were talking about this before we started the podcast, and I'm used to being able to summon words to articulate experiences. I, I don't often find myself without words. I don't think I had some mystical wordless encounter through Lady Mass, but I did come out of it without something obvious to say. I was disoriented, I was confused, I was, uh, maybe confused is the wrong word, I'm trying to find the right word, it's not troubled, it was like, I feel like there's a word that's eluding me, even now as I'm trying to find it, uh, to describe it. Uh, I'll take troubled. Troubled, okay, uh, and and I wanted to just linger in that space for a while. And I did write something in the book of insight. It's, I wrote something really weird and uh, I don't even quite know what it means. Oh, we gotta go uh, back and see yeah, which you one can go check, You can check it against the schedule and I'll tell you what it is, but not, <laughs> not, not on the podcast. Um, anyway, uh, it reminds me, and, and well, this okay. I wanted to ask you guys what what do you intend to do with the Book of Insight? So one of the things that's interesting about this mystical theology, which is sometimes called negative theology, because you have to negate every positive statement you make about God, or you have to unsay every divine name that you say, is that. Is, is their insistence that even when you unsay something, the unsaying then becomes a new saying that you have to unsay. So you're kind of committed to this perpetual unsaying, or sometimes it's called the negation of negation. And so I wonder, you know, the Book of Insight is now this kind of curious, anonymous record of reactions. Mm -hmm which itself is a kind of record uh, that, that you can then set against itself. Like it's, uh, it's not, I, I, I suppose, I don't know, this is, I, I'm not being very crisp here, but I would suggest some kind of, I don't want to say suspicion of, these reports that people offer immediately after, mm -hmm. but that this is actually, you now you have all these words that are an invitation again mm -hmm. to do something with, mm -hmm. right? And that, that to me is kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. um, almost as if you could have, here's an idea, make a manual of contemplation out of the book of insight, mm -hmm. uh, but not in the order it comes, like, you can mm -hmm, mm -hmm. create something out of the book of insight mm. uh, that is inspired by the idea that that what is a this this author was inspired by this neoplatonic philosopher Proclus. And I'm going to paraphrase this quote, but he says something to the effect of, "When you're dealing with the ineffable, you have to set words against themselves." Mm perpetually. Mm. Like, how do you take the book oh. of insight and sort of, you know, turn it in on itself? Mm -hmm. um, it's just an idea. No, it's very interesting to think about. And I, I also, I think what I love in hearing the report, though, is I think it describes precisely something I wish was more lively in our experience of liturgy in the church is the sense of encountering something for which you are not entirely oriented and which is not simple to receive and process. I think that's in a very, very, now I'm just, I'm taking it down from that 
I'm going to think about the setting words against each other. I want to think about what to do with the book of insight. We'll probably keep discussing this, but I just, just tracking on a couple of the words that you came up with, just this like bringing it down to this very basic level. I, my experience of people in the church is that they believe they know what the Eucharist is. They know what it is they're getting from it. And they believe that they get the thing that they know that they were going to get from it. And I am very happy to at least, if nothing else, disrupt yeah. that certainty. Yeah. To be like, I do not know what I'm getting. I do not know what I'm encountering. <laughs> and I do not know how I'm supposed to respond. And I do not know who is in charge. <laughs> On which side of the table. That's a huge, <laughs> huge achievement. <laughs> so just to celebrate that. Disorientation. <laughs> And ignorance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just what the church needs for us. True. But honestly. I mean, honestly, yeah. I think that's I think that's huge. And like, especially after spending two years working in this particular community, which very much privileges the discursive and being able to explain church and explain God and analyze and use language for that, verbal language for that. Like I think it it's 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 felt important to me to create this thing that does not primarily operate in that register. And that does leave some people disoriented and confused. Um, and, and I think what just, I'm, I'm thinking about this tension that you pulled out Charlie about the book of insight. Um, and I think one of, one of the things that I've really appreciated about it is that there are some comments in there that are, more explanatory like the one that i'm thinking of the one that sticks with me is the interesting fun though like that (laughs) that type of response um but then there's also been some comments that are just completely just on a different you know plane like they don't they don't make sense to us or at least to me as someone who is not inside the head of the person who wrote it and so i think like those those have been the ones that have you know kind of affirmed the choice to have that space for me um is yeah i just i think the the ones that kind of capture like oh someone can go through this experience and like it it knocks something loose for them um that like even even as they articulate it in verbal written language right like um it's it's not it's not like directly mapping on in any linear way so that i feel like that's that's where i felt like okay there's something still kind of live there for me sorry this one back to this point of the setting words against themselves because what what interests me about pseudodionysius is it's not about the destruction of all the forms that that's not actually going to get you anything so you still you must engage the forms and and even then but then you you must perpetually both engage and participate in the forms as well as disturb and disrupt the forms in order for them to stay alive. Um, and so I think that's some of what we're naming here. Like you, you, you both, you must protect an experience which is wordless and yet you, you must also, you must also use words and you must, you must think of different ways to encounter words. And obviously that's, you know. No, it's, it's just interesting. So much of it is so the ideas of sort of theology and, and, and the ideas behind art are, are so much the same and it's kind of like you know if you're going to be a composer you have to learn the rules of composition before you're allowed to break them you, you can't just go out there and do anything you have to learn about painting and sculpting before you can go and do your abstract art to to you know to achieve the greatest breaking of the forms you have to know what the forms are um, and I have found when friends have talked to me afterwards and i've only really talked to a couple of people but when they've talked about what they've experienced um i haven't been very eager to affirm or disavow any reaction that they've told me if they've said oh i realized that it was blah 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 and my response tends to be or was it you know um because i like the idea of leaving that open and not i really it's not about what they think it means. It's about how they encountered it. And so the interesting thing, for example, was a friend of mine who really didn't comment on the actual project or the installation. She just commented on how good it felt to be out doing something with strangers. And, and you know, that I was like, that's a very valid 
emotive reaction to this, that it's actually not about a narrative of the event. It's about, well, this is what this event represented to me post lockdown. Um, so it, it sort of functions on all those different levels that it doesn't even have to be about what the things in the garden mean. It can be about what the larger experience means to you at this moment in this pan pandemic world that we've been living in. Um, and I am still inclined, of course, to discuss it with people and, and chew it over because again, that's our nature to be like, mm, let's get into this, let's explore, let's discuss. But I, I think we're doing a pretty good job, I hope. And because we're continually being open to it, because going back to where we started, this project has been so organic. I think we're being quite good at, at keep allowing space for all manner of reactions and i hope therefore leaving freedom from the tyranny of words if people need it and leaving freedom to express through words if people need it and i think as this project goes on because it definitely will continue to have a life not only thinking about how do you use the book of insight how do you react with and against that but going forward, as we're working on creating a film out of the footage that we captured on Tuesday and how that will be another layer of interpretation, another different kind of expression. Um, and then how that will then be communicated, maybe taking it to other churches where there will be some aspects of the experience as well as the film, as well as maybe dialogue. How do we continue both from a theological point of view and also just from an artistic point of view? to allow the project to exist in as many ways, as many forms, on as many planes as possible. And it's kind of mind bending, but it's really cool because how many art projects are able to do that? It feels to me like this extraordinary, maybe not even three dimensional, maybe four dimensional, maybe there are more dimensions, shape that is constantly shifting and, um, being a custodian of that means allowing it to keep turning itself inside out and around and upside down in our own heads in our own bodies and in the way that we try and share it with other people and it's um it's very liberating and very exciting and it it sort of feels like quite a responsibility to allow the project to keep having that freedom to itself but i Feel like we've been doing that quite well and i'm and i and i'm excited to see how we will carry on doing that it feels to me like there's a lot of manifestations still to come okay i want to say two things one is just k-pop <laughs> <laughs> just in terms of a contemporary genre that's like what we'll make up we'll make stuff on 150 levels all at once simultaneously not really worry if they're adding up and just like have a huge kind of maelstrom of forms and variations. I do want to just like give some credit there. That's like amazing sort of world where that's happening. But I also, I want to get to you, Charlie, and see if you, um, uh, if you want to say something about that comment. Briefly, I just want to say too, that it's interesting to me, the extent to which this is a body experience yeah. um, and an experience of other people that is not, it's not dependent, like I, I I really appreciate it. And this might be my own post COVID kind of witness. I'm not necessarily like, I'm really enjoying my encounters with people as they come through the tent. And I feel very liberated to be able to encounter them without having to talk to them uh, or have them talk to me. And the, the talking that we do with one another is so often, sometimes we have really rich, like we're having a really good conversation right now, but oftentimes, the talking is a kind of spacer um, that like helps protect the sort of boundaries and establish them and reify them. And this is a way of encountering people that is just encountering a different, encountering people in a different way that I'm not super familiar with. Although then it of course reminds me that like, well, in churches, in rituals, you are encountering people physically all the time, but we do tend to drop screens between that. And it's just interesting to sort of subtract that apparatus in a sense and have a have a different vocabulary of some kind but i um, I, so. couldn't, I couldn't agree more i think that's one of the most powerful things about it is that you're there's familiar staging and familiar gestures but all of them are also unfamiliar and they're and you don't have recourse to 
the words that, as you're saying, usually make those encounters uh, maybe all too intelligible. And so you're just forced to re be reminded, I'm a body, I'm this far from that body, that body is making these gestures. What am I supposed to do? Uh, am I supposed to spectate? Am I supposed to participate? You know, there was one moment I told you when I, are we allowed to talk about what happens? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, that first encounter, the first Eucharist, mm -hmm. I started mirroring the movements of uh, the priest, the hierophant, whoever that is behind the uh, behind the altar. Yeah. Um, and yet when I was in the tent, I didn't take the invitation to dance, which I understand other people do. But it, but it, you're, you're disoriented. And I think I took anyway, I think that's really one of the most powerful things that you all have done is and, and it takes that like weird alchemy of the familiar and the unfamiliar mm -hmm. to really disorient you. If it's all unfamiliar, you're it's just, like, it doesn't have any effect. It's mm -hmm. precisely because you, the, the staging and the gestures are both familiar and, and the costumes are familiar and bizarre that it, it really undoes you. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's, that's the important work. And actually, honestly, to be undone is a good way of talking about negative mystical theology. That's actually what it's all about, undoing. Not with the purpose, as you were saying, of just some, some fantasy that you can escape form. You have to use form in order to get some glimmer or taste of formlessness, but no, we, we, we don't exist in formlessness. Existence is formed. No, it's the, it's the, it's the non-existence of the divine source that has the privilege of existing in formlessness, maybe it can break through into form uh, and we can taste it, we can encounter it. I, now I think, I know we have to go, but I'm, I just have to like, I feel like we could end this chapter with uh, a, a word from St. Elmo the Stylite, AKA Evagrius, who says, blessed is the one who attains to perfect formlessness, a time of prayer. <laughs> yeah, amen. I just wanted to uh, throw in two quick things. One is props to Kirsten for exactly what you were talking about, Charlie, of like holding us to creating a container in, that is familiar enough for people to actually be able to engage with the parts of it that are discomforting and unsettling. Um, so that's the one. And then two, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the lady in Lady Mass, right? Where for me, like, again, we're not dealing discursively or like explicitly or obviously necessarily with like gender and feminism however there is a a layer to this whole conversation about words and wordlessness that to me maps on to um sort of a a heritage of thought around this that is very much shaped by you know feminism and womanism and so for me it's been interesting to kind of be like playing with those threads in a, such an indirect way um and just thinking about, like, for me, it, uh, I've, I've been thinking throughout this conversation about the Audre Lorde's essay, um, Uses of the Erotic, where she talks about, I mean, she talks about a lot of amazing things. And one of, one of the sort of, like, key pieces that has stuck with me since I first read that essay um, is this idea of sort of, like, elevating bodily knowledge, somatic knowledge, as something that is legitimate and complex um, at the same level as you know, written or verbal or discursive knowledge, um, which to me, yeah, I just, I've, I've found it interesting how, how much that thread has kind of come through in this project without it intentionally being like, this is a feminist theater piece, um, because that wasn't the intention, that wasn't, you know, how we walked into this. I just want to say, Meredith, you're right that this is, I don't, I think it's significantly about gender and embodiment. And it's very important that we're talking about like staging Eucharists where the usual bodies are not there, right? It's not just men doing the gestures. And I know that Obviously, you're in the Episcopal Church, and that is, it's not just men doing that, but we're dealing with a tradition overwhelmingly of men. The presumed body, in any case, is the men. And I just want to, I don't, I want to think more about this. I don't have this sorted out, but mm. 
Well, I was thinking about the title Lady Mast. Uh, you know, mass obviously is the mass, the Eucharist, but it's also matter. It's the, it's the measurement of matter in a body. And matter, one of the etymologies of matter is mater from Latin, from mother. Hmm. Uh, so there is something to be thought through <laughs> in hmm. just materiality, embodiment, and the way in which this tradition, of which we're all a part, whether we want to be or not, attenuated or not, has pushed, you might say has pushed all bodies to the side, but it has also flagged women's bodies as like the quintessence of embodiment that needs to be pushed aside. Mm -hmm. And one thing this Lady Mass has done, which is why it's discomforting, and by the way, that is precisely the word I wish I could have summoned earlier, <laughs> is that you've brought that in, but not in, in a kind of, like in a really discomforting way, because it's not, you're also playing with what women's bodies are mm. in every single encounter, top to bottom. And I, I don't know, that's, that's, re that's really an achievement. Yeah, I think just sort of following on from that, if the, if the piece does any one thing, and I hope it does many, many things, and so I'm not trying to nail it down, um, but at its simplest level, I think it gives people permission simply to be. If I had to say what well, one thing would I want people to take away, I want them to take away a thousand things and no things. Um, but I hope we just say, you know what, you can just be and you don't have to be defined. Thank you for joining us for this episode of You Never Walk Alone, Voices from the Episcopal Chaplaincy at Harvard. This podcast is created and produced by myself and the Reverend Rita Powell. Our theme music was composed and produced by Aidan Stoddart. If you'd like to support the chaplaincy or learn more about what we do, you can visit us online at www.harvardepiscopalians.org. Take care, and remember, you never walk alone.